BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Section 3 of Pense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin, London, Ontario, Canada. Latin language reading by Lenny, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Pensée by Blaise Pascal. Translated by W. F. Trotter. Section 3 of The Necessity of the Wager. 184. A letter to incite to the search after God, and then to make people seek him among the philosophers, skeptics, and dogmatists, who disquiet him who inquires of them. 185. The conduct of God, who disposes all things kindly, is to put religion into the mind by reason, and into the heart by grace. But to will to put it into the mind and heart by force and threats is not to put religion there, but terror. Terrorem potius quam religionem. Footnote. Terror rather than religion. End of footnote. 186. Nisi terrerentur et non docerentur, improba quasi dominatio videretur. Augustine, Epistle 48 or 49. Footnote. If they were not terrified and were instructed, it would seem like an unjust tyranny. End of footnote. Contra mendacium ad consentium. Footnote. To meet a lie, appeal to the council. End of footnote. 187. Order. Men despise religion. They hate it and fear it is true. To remedy this, we must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is venerable, to inspire respect for it, then we must make it lovable, to make good men hope it is true. Finally, we must prove it is true. Venerable, because it has perfect knowledge of man. Lovable, because it promises the true good. 188. In every dialogue and discourse, we must be able to say to those who take offense, Of what do you complain? 189. To begin by pitying unbelievers, they are wretched enough by their condition. We ought only to revile them where it is beneficial, but this does them harm. 190. To pity atheists who seek, for are they not unhappy enough to inveigh against those who make a boast of it? 191. And will this one scoff at the other? 
who ought to scoff? And yet the latter does not scoff at the other, but pities him. 192. To reproach Miton with not being troubled, since God will reproach him. 193. Quid fiet hominibus, qui minima contemnunt, maiora non credunt. Footnote. What will happen to men who despise the smallest things and do not believe the greater? End of footnote. 194. Let them at least learn what is the religion they attack before attacking it. If this religion boasted of having a clear view of God and of possessing it open and unveiled, it would be attacking it to say that we see nothing in the world which shows it with this clearness. But since, on the contrary, it says that men are in darkness and estranged from God, that he has hidden himself from their knowledge, that this is in fact the name which he gives himself in the scriptures. Deus absconditus. Footnote. A hidden God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. End of footnote. And finally, if it endeavors equally to establish these two things, that God has set up in the church visible signs to make himself known to those who should seek him sincerely, and that he has nevertheless so disguised them that he will only be perceived by those who seek him with all their heart, what advantage can they obtain when, in the negligence with which they make profession of being in search of the truth, they cry out that nothing reveals it to them? And since that darkness in which they are, and with which they upbraid the church, establishes only one of the things which she affirms without touching the other, and, very far from destroying, proves her doctrine. In order to attack it, they should have protested that they had made every effort to seek him everywhere, and even in that which the church proposes for their instruction, but without satisfaction. If they talked in this manner, they would in truth be attacking one of her pretensions. But I hope here to show that no reasonable person can speak thus, and I venture even to say that no one ever has done so. We know well enough how those who are of this mind behave. They believe they have made great efforts for their instruction when they have spent a few hours in reading some book of scripture and have questioned some priest on the truths of the faith. After that they boast of having made vain search in books and among men. But verily I will tell them what I have often said, that this negligence is insufferable. We are not here concerned with the trifling interest of some stranger, that we should treat it in this fashion. The matter concerns ourselves and our all. The immortality of the soul is a matter which is of so great consequence to us, and which touches us so profoundly, that we must have lost all feeling to be indifferent as to knowing what it is. All our actions and thoughts must take such different courses, according as there are or are not eternal joys to hope for, that it is impossible to take one step with sense and judgment unless we regulate our course by our view of this point which ought to be our ultimate end. Thus our first interest and our first duty is to enlighten ourselves on this subject, whereon depends all our conduct. Therefore, among those who do not believe, I make a vast difference between those who strive with all their power to inform themselves and those who live without troubling or thinking about it. I can have only compassion for those who sincerely bewail their doubt, who regard it as the greatest of misfortunes, and who, sparing no effort to escape it, make of this inquiry their principal and most serious occupation. But as for those who pass their life without thinking of this ultimate end of life, and who, for the sole reason that they do not find within themselves the lights which convince them of it, neglect to seek them elsewhere, 
and to examine thoroughly whether this opinion is one of those which people receive with credulous simplicity, or one of those which, although obscure in themselves, have nevertheless a solid and immovable foundation, I look upon them in a manner quite different. This carelessness in a matter which concerns themselves, their eternity, their all, moves me more to anger than pity. It astonishes and shocks me. It is to me monstrous. I do not say this out of the pious zeal of a spiritual devotion. I expect, on the contrary, that we ought to have this feeling from principles of human interest and self-love. For this we need only see what the least enlightened persons see. We do not require great education of the mind to understand that here is no real and lasting satisfaction, that our pleasures are only vanity, that our evils are infinite, and lastly that death, which threatens us every moment, must infallibly place us within a few years under the dreadful necessity of being forever either annihilated or unhappy. There is nothing more real than this, nothing more terrible. Be as heroic as we like, that is the end which awaits the noblest life in the world. Let us reflect on this, and then say whether it is not beyond doubt that there is no good in this life but in the hope of another, that we are happy only in proportion as we draw near it, and that, as there are no more woes for those who have complete assurance of eternity, so there is no more happiness for those who have no insight into it. Surely, then, it is a great evil thus to be in doubt, but it is at least an indispensable duty to seek when we are in such doubt, and thus the doubter who does not seek is altogether completely unhappy and completely wrong. And if besides this he is easy and content, professed to be so, and indeed boasts of it, if it is this state itself which is the subject of his joy and vanity, I have no words to describe so silly a creature. How can people hold these opinions? What joy can we find in the expectation of nothing but hopeless misery? What reason for boasting that we are in impenetrable darkness? And how can it happen that the following argument occurs to a reasonable man? I know not who put me into the world, nor what the world is, not what I myself am. I am in terrible ignorance of everything. I know not what my body is, nor my senses, nor my soul, nor even that part of me which thinks what I say, which reflects on all, and on itself, and knows itself no more than the rest. I see those frightful spaces of the universe which surround me, and I find myself tied to one corner of this vast expanse, without knowing why I am put in this place rather than in another, nor why the short time which is given me to live is assigned to me at this point rather than at another of the whole eternity which was before me, or which shall come after me. I see nothing but infinites on all sides, which surround me as an atom, and as a shadow which endures only for an instant and returns no more. All I know is that I must soon die, but what I know least is this very death which I cannot escape. As I know not whence I come, so I know not whither I go. I know only that, in leaving this world, I fall forever either into annihilation or into the hands of an angry god, without knowing to which of these two states I shall be forever assigned. Such is my state, full of weakness and uncertainty. And from all this I conclude that I ought to spend all of the days of my life without caring to inquire into what must happen to me. Perhaps I might find some solution to my doubts, but I will not take the trouble, nor take a step to seek in. And after treating with scorn those who are concerned with this care, I will go without foresight and without fear to try the great event, and let myself be led carelessly to death, uncertain of the eternity of my future state. Who would desire to have for a friend a man who talks in this fashion? 
Who would choose him out from the others to tell him of his affairs? Who would have recourse to him in affliction? And indeed, to what use in life could one put him? In truth, it is the glory of religion to have for enemies men so unreasonable, and their opposition to it is so little dangerous that it serves on the contrary to establish its truths. For the Christian faith goes mainly to establish these two facts, the corruption of nature and redemption by Jesus Christ. Now I contend that if these men do not serve to prove the truth of the redemption by the holiness of their behavior, they at least serve admirably to show the corruption of nature by sentiments so unnatural. Nothing is so important to man as his own state, nothing is so formidable to him as eternity, and thus it is not natural that there should be men indifferent to the loss of their existence and to the perils of everlasting suffering. They are quite different with regard to all other things. They are afraid of mere trifles, they foresee them, they feel them. And this same man who spends so many days and nights in rage and despair for the loss of office, or for some imaginary insult to his honor, is the very one who knows without anxiety and without emotion that he will lose all by death. It is a monstrous thing to see in the same heart and at the same time this sensibility to trifles and this strange insensibility to the greatest objects. It is an incomprehensible enchantment and a supernatural slumber, which indicates, as its cause, an all-powerful force. There must be a strange confusion in the nature of man, that he should boast of being in that state in which it seems incredible that a single individual should be. However, experience has shown me so great a number of such persons, that the fact would be surprising if we did not know that the greater part of those who trouble themselves about the matter are disingenuous, and not, in fact, what they say. They are people who have heard it said that it is the fashion to be thus daring. It is what they call shaking off the yoke, and they try to imitate this. But it would not be difficult to make them understand how greatly they deceive themselves in thus seeking esteem. This is not the way to gain it. Even I say among those men of the world who take a healthy view of things, and who know that the only way to succeed in this life is to make ourselves appear honorable, faithful, judicious, and capable of useful service to a friend, because naturally men love only what may be useful to them. Now, what do we gain by hearing it said of a man that he has now thrown off the yoke, that he does not believe there is a God who watches our actions, and that he considers himself the sole master of his conduct, and that he thinks he is accountable for it only to himself? Does he think that he has thus brought us to have henceforth complete confidence in him, and to look to him for consolation, advice, and help in every need of life? Do they profess to have delighted us by telling us that they hold our soul to be only a little wind and smoke, especially by telling us this in a haughty and self-satisfied tone of voice? Is this a thing to say gaily? Is it not, on the contrary, a thing to say sadly, as the saddest thing in the world? If they thought of it seriously, they would see that this is so bad a mistake, so contrary to good sense, so opposed to decency, and so removed in every respect from that good breeding which they seek, that they would be more likely to correct than to pervert those who had an inclination to follow them, and indeed make them give an account of their opinions, and of the reasons which they have for doubting religion, and they will say to you things so feeble and so petty that they will persuade you of the contrary. The following is what a person one day said to such an one very oppositely, if you continue to talk in this manner, you will really make me religious. And he was right, 
for who would not have a horror of holding opinions in which he would have such contemptible persons as companions? Thus those who only feign these opinions would be very unhappy if they restrained their natural feelings in order to make themselves the most conceited of men. If at the bottom of their heart they are troubled at not having more light, let them not disguise the fact. This avowal will not be shameful. The only shame is to have none. Nothing reveals more an extreme weakness of mind than not to know the misery of a godless man. Nothing is more indicative of a bad disposition of heart than not to desire the truth of eternal promises. Nothing is more dastardly than to act the bravado before God. Let them then leave these impieties to those who are sufficiently ill-bred to be really capable of them. Let them at least be honest men, if they cannot be Christians. Finally, let them recognize that there are two kinds of people one can call reasonable, those who serve God with all their heart because they know Him, and those who seek Him with all their heart because they do not know Him. But as for those who live without knowing Him and without seeking Him, they judge themselves so little worthy of their own care that they are not worthy of the care of others, and it needs all the charity of the religion which they despise not to despise them even to the point of leaving them to their folly. But because this religion obliges us always to regard them, so long as they are in this life, as capable of the grace which can enlighten them, and to believe that they may, in a little time, be more replenished with faith than we are, and that, on the other hand, we may fall into the blindness wherein they are, we must do for them what we would they should do for us if we were in their place, and call upon them to have pity upon themselves, and to take at least some steps in the endeavor to find light. Let them give to reading this some of the hours which they otherwise employ so uselessly. Whatever aversion they may bring to the task, they will perhaps gain something, and at least will not lose much. But as for those who bring to the task perfect sincerity and a real desire to meet with truth, those, I hope, will be satisfied and convinced of the proofs of our religion so divine, which I have here collected, and in which I have followed somewhat after this order. 195. Before entering into the proofs of the Christian religion, I find it necessary to point out the sinfulness of those men who live in indifference to the search for truth in a matter which is so important to them, and which touches them so nearly. Of all their errors, this doubtless is the one which most convicts them of foolishness and blindness, and in which it is easiest to confound them by the first glimmerings of common sense, and by natural feelings. For it is not to be doubted that the duration of this life is but a moment, that the state of death is eternal, whatever may be its nature, and that thus all our actions and thoughts must take such different directions according to the state of that eternity, that it is impossible to take one step without sense and judgment unless we regulate our course by the truth of that point which ought to be our ultimate end. There is nothing clearer than this, and thus, according to the principles of reason, the conduct of men is wholly unreasonable if they do not take another course. On this point, therefore, we condemn those who live without thought of the ultimate end of life, who let themselves be guided by their own inclinations and their own pleasures without reflection and without concern, and, as if they could annihilate eternity by turning away their thought from it, think only of making themselves happy for the moment. Yet this eternity exists, and death, which must open into it, and threatens them every hour, must in a little time infallibly put them under the dreadful necessity of being either annihilated or unhappy forever, without knowing which of these eternities is forever prepared for them. This is a doubt of terrible consequence. They are in peril of eternal woe, 
and thereupon, as if the matter were not worth the trouble, they neglect to inquire whether this is one of those opinions which people receive with too credulous a facility, or one of those which, obscure in themselves, have a very firm though hidden foundation. Thus they know not whether there be truth or falsity in the matter, nor whether there be strength or weakness in the proofs. They have them before their eyes, they refuse to look at them, and in that ignorance they choose all that is necessary to fall into this misfortune, if it exist, to await death to make trial of it, yet to be very content in this state, to make profession of it, and indeed to boast of it. Can we think seriously on the importance of the subject without being horrified at conduct so extravagant? This resting in ignorance is a monstrous thing, and they who pass their life in it must be made to feel its extravagance and stupidity by having it shown to them, so that they may be confounded by the sight of their folly. For this is how men reason, when they choose to live in such ignorance of what they are, and without seeking enlightenment. I know not, they say. 196. Men lack heart. They would not make a friend of it. 197. To be insensible to the extent of despising interesting things, and to become insensible to the point which interests us most. 198. The sensibility of man to trifles, and his insensibility to great things, indicates a strange inversion. 199. Let us imagine a number of men in chains, and all condemned to death, where some are killed each day in the sight of the others, and those who remain see their own fate in that of their fellows, and wait their turn, looking at each other sorrowfully and without hope. It is an image of the condition of men. 200. A man in a dungeon, ignorant whether his sentence be pronounced, and having only one hour to learn it, but this hour enough, if he know that it is pronounced, to obtain his repeal, would act unnaturally in spending that hour not in ascertaining his sentence, but in playing piquet. So it is against nature that man, etc. It is making heavy the hand of God. Thus not only the zeal of those who seek him proves God, but also the blindness of those who seek him not. 201. All the objections of this one and that one only go against themselves, and not against religion. All that infidels say. Note, in the text, the thought is incomplete. End of note. 202. From those who are in despair at being without faith, we see that God does not enlighten them, but as to the rest we see there is a God who makes them blind. 203. Fascinatio nugacitatis. Footnote. The Bewitching of Naughtiness. Wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 12. End of footnote. That passion may not harm us, let us act as if we had only eight hours to live. 204. If we ought to devote eight hours of life, we ought to devote a hundred years. 205. When I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in the eternity before and after, the little space which I fill, and even can see, engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I am ignorant, and which know me not, I am frightened, and am astonished at being here rather than there. For there is no reason why here rather than there, why now rather than then. Who has put me here? By whose order and direction have this place and time been allotted to me? Memoria Hospitis Unius Diei Praetereuntis Footnote. 
the remembrance of a guest that tarrieth but a day. Wisdom, chapter 5, verse 14. End of footnote. 206. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. 207. How many kingdoms know us not? 208. Why is my knowledge limited? Why my stature? Why my life to one hundred years rather than to a thousand? What reason has nature had for giving me such, and for choosing this number rather than another in the infinity of those from which there is no more reason to choose one than another, trying nothing else? 209. Art thou less a slave by being loved and favoured by thy master? Thou art indeed well off, slave. Thy master favours thee. He will soon beat thee. 210. The last act is tragic, however happy all the rest of the play is. At the last, a little earth is thrown upon our head, and that is the end, forever. 211. We are fools to depend upon the society of our fellow men. Wretched as we are, powerless as we are, they will not aid us. We shall die alone. We should therefore act as if we were alone. And in that case, should we build fine houses, etc.? We should seek the truth without hesitation. And if we refuse it, we show that we value the esteem of men more than the search for truth. 212. Instability. It is a horrible thing to feel all that we possess slipping away. 213. Between us and heaven or hell, there is only life, which is the frailest thing in the world. 214. Injustice. That presumption should be joined to meanness is extreme injustice. 215. To fear death without danger, and not in danger, for one must be a man. 216. Sudden death alone is feared. Hence confessors stay with lords. 217. An heir finds the title deeds of his house. Will he say, perhaps they are forged, and neglect to examine them? 218. Dungeon. I approve of not examining the opinion of Copernicus, but this, it concerns all our life to know whether the soul be mortal or immortal. 219. It is certain that the mortality or immortality of the soul must make an entire difference to morality, and yet philosophers have constructed their ethics independently of this, they discuss to pass an hour. Plato to incline to Christianity. 220. The fallacy of philosophers who have not discussed the immortality of the soul. The fallacy of their dilemma in Montaigne. 221. Atheists ought to say what is perfectly evident. Now it is not perfectly evident that the soul is material. 222. Atheists. What reason have they for saying that we cannot rise from the dead? What is more difficult, to be born or to rise again? That what has never been should be, or that what has been should be again? Is it more difficult to come into existence than to return to it? Habit makes the one appear easy to us. Want of habit makes the other impossible, a popular way of thinking. Why cannot a virgin bear a child? Does a hen not lay eggs without a cock? What distinguishes these outwardly from others? And who has told us that the hen may not form the germ as well as the cock? 
223. What have they to say against the resurrection and against the childbearing of the virgin? Which is the more difficult, to produce a man or an animal, or to reproduce it? And if they had never seen any species of animals, could they have conjectured whether they were produced without connection with each other? 224. How I hate these follies of not believing in the Eucharist, etc. If the Gospel be true, if Jesus Christ be God, what difficulty is there? 225. Atheism shows strength of mind, but only to a certain degree. 226. Infidels who profess to follow reason ought to be exceedingly strong in reason. What say they, then? Do we not see, they say, that the brutes live and die like men, and Turks like Christians? They have their ceremonies, their prophets, their doctors, their saints, their monks, like us, etc. Is this contrary to Scripture? Does it not say all this? If you care but little to know the truth, here is enough of it to leave you in repose. But if you desire with all your heart to know it, it is not enough. Look at it in detail. This would be sufficient for a question in philosophy, but not here, where it concerns your all. And yet, after a trifling reflection of this kind, we go to amuse ourselves, etc. Let us inquire of this same religion whether it does not give a reason for this obscurity. Perhaps it will teach it to us. 227. Order by Dialogues what ought I to do? I see only darkness everywhere. Shall I believe I am nothing? Shall I believe I am God? All things change and succeed each other. You are mistaken. There is... Note. In the text, the thought is incomplete. End of note. 228. Objection of Atheists. But we have no light. 229. This is what I see and what troubles me. I look on all sides, and I see only darkness everywhere. Nature presents to me nothing which is not matter of doubt and concern. If I saw nothing there which revealed a divinity, I would come to a negative conclusion. If I saw everywhere the signs of a creator, I would remain peacefully in faith. But, seeing too much to deny, and too little to be sure, I am in a state to be pitied. Wherefore I have a hundred times wished that if a god maintains nature, she should testify to him unequivocally and that, if the signs she gives are deceptive, she should suppress them altogether, that she should say everything or nothing, that I might see which cause I ought to follow. Whereas in my present state, ignorant of what I am or what I ought to do, I know neither my condition nor my duty. My heart inclines wholly to know, where is the true good, in order to follow it. Nothing would be too dear to me for eternity." I envy those whom I see living in the faith with such carelessness, and who make such a bad use of a gift of which it seems to me I would make such a different use. 230. It is incomprehensible that God should exist, and it is incomprehensible that he should not exist, that the soul should be joined to the body, and that we should have no soul, that the world should be created, and that it should not be created, etc., that original sin should be, and that it should not be. 231. Do you believe it to be impossible that God is infinite without parts? Yes. I wish therefore to show you an infinite and indivisible thing. It is a point moving everywhere with an infinite velocity, for it is one in all places, and is all totality in every place. 
Let this effect of nature, which previously seemed to you impossible, make you know that there may be others of which you are still ignorant. Do not draw this conclusion from your experiment, that there remains nothing for you to know, but rather that there remains an infinity for you to know. 232. Infinite movement, the point which fills everything, the moment of rest, infinite without quantity, indivisible, and infinite. 233. Infinite. Nothing. Our soul is cast into a body, where it finds number, time, dimension. Thereupon it reasons and calls this nature necessity and can believe nothing else. Unity joined to infinity adds nothing to it, no more than one foot to an infinite measure. The finite is annihilated in the presence of the infinite and becomes a pure nothing. So our spirit before God so our justice before divine justice. There is not so great a disproportion between our justice and that of God as between unity and infinity. The justice of God must be vast like his compassion. Now justice to the outcast is less vast and not less to offend our feelings than mercy towards the elect. We know that there is an infinite and are ignorant of its nature. As we know it to be false that numbers are finite, it is therefore true that there is an infinity in number. But we do not know what it is. It is false that it is even. It is false that it is odd, for the addition of a unit can make no change in its nature. Yet it is a number, and every number is odd or even. This is certainly true of every finite number. So we may well know that there is a God without knowing what he is. Is there not one substantial truth seeing there are so many things which are not the truth itself. We know then the existence and nature of the finite, because we also are finite and have extension. We know the existence of the infinite, and are ignorant of its nature, because it has extension like us, but not limits like us. But we know neither the existence nor the nature of God, because he has neither extension nor limits. But by faith we know his existence, in glory we shall know his nature. Now, I have already shown that we may well know the existence of a thing without knowing its nature. Let us now speak according to natural lights. If there is a God, he is infinitely incomprehensible, since, having neither part nor limits, he has no affinity to us. We are then incapable of knowing either what he is or if he is. This being so, who will dare to undertake the decision of the question? not we who have no affinity to him. Who then will blame Christians for not being able to give a reason for their belief, since they profess a religion for which they cannot give a reason? They declare, in expounding it to the world, that it is a foolishness, stultitium, and then you complain that they do not prove it. If they proved it, they would not keep their word. It is in lacking proofs that they are not lacking in sense. Yes, but although this excuses those who offer it as such, and take away from them the blame of putting it forward without reason, it does not excuse those who receive it. Let us then examine this point and say, God is, or he is not. But to which side shall we incline? Reason can decide nothing here. There is an infinite chaos which separates us. A game is being played at the extremity of this infinite distance where heads or tails will turn up. What will you wager? According to reason, you can do neither the one thing nor the other. According to reason, you can defend neither of the propositions. Do not then reprove for error those who have made a choice, for you know nothing about it. 
No, but I blame them for having made not this choice, but a choice. For again, both he who chooses heads and he who chooses tails are equally at fault. They are both in the wrong. The true course is not to wager at all. Yes, but you must wager. It is not optional. You are embarked. Which will you choose, then? Let us see. Since you must choose, let us see which interests you least. You have two things to lose, the true and the good, and two things to stake, your reason and your will, your knowledge and your happiness, and your nature has two things to shun, error and misery. Your reason is no more shocked in choosing one rather than the other, since you must of necessity choose. This is one point settled. But your happiness, let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager, then, without hesitation, that he is. That is very fine. Yes, I must wager, but I may perhaps wager too much. Let us see. Since there is an equal risk of gain and of loss, if you had only to gain two lives instead of one, you might still wager. But if there were three lives to gain, you would have to play, since you are under the necessity of playing, and you would be imprudent when you are forced to play, not to chance your life to gain three at a game where there is an equal risk of loss and gain. But there is an eternity of life and happiness. And this being so, if there were an infinity of chances, of which one only would be for you, you would still be right in wagering one to win two, and you would act stupidly, being obliged to play, by refusing to stake one life against three at a game in which, out of an infinity of chances, there is one for you if there were an infinity of an infinitely happy life to gain. But there is here an infinity of an infinitely happy life to gain, a chance of gain against a finite number of chances of loss, and what you stake is finite. It is all divided. Wherever the infinite is, and there is not an infinity of chances of loss against that of gain, there is no time to hesitate. You must give all. And thus, when one is forced to play, he must renounce reason to preserve his life, rather than risk it for infinite gain, as likely to happen as the loss of nothingness. For it is no use to say, it is uncertain if we will gain, and it is certain that we risk, and that the infinite distance between the certainty of what is staked, and the uncertainty of what will be gained, equals the finite good which is certainly staked against the uncertain infinite. It is not so as every player stakes a certainty to gain an uncertainty, and yet he stakes a finite certainty to gain a finite uncertainty, without transgressing against reason. There is not an infinite distance between the certainty staked and the uncertainty of the gain. That is untrue. In truth, there is an infinity between the certainty of gain and the certainty of loss. But the uncertainty of the gain is proportioned to the certainty of the stake, according to the proportion of the chances of gain and loss. Hence it comes that, if there are as many risks on one side as on the other, the course is to play even, and then the certainty of the stake is equal to the uncertainty of the gain, so far is it from fact that there is an infinite distance between them. And so our proposition is of infinite force, when there is the finite to stake in a game where there are equal risks of gain and of loss, and the infinite to gain. This is demonstrable, and if men are capable of any truths, this is one. I confess it, I admit it, but still, is there no means of seeing the faces of the cards? Yes, scripture and the rest, etc. 
Yes, but I have my hands tied and my mouth closed. I am forced to wager I am not free. I am not released, and am so made that I cannot believe. What then would you have me do? True, but at least learn your inability to believe, since reason brings you to this, and yet you cannot believe. Endeavor then to convince yourself, not by increase of proofs of God, but by the abatement of your passions. You would like to attain faith and do not know the way. You would like to cure yourself of unbelief and ask the remedy for it. Learn of those who have been bound like you and who now stake all their possessions. These are people who know the way which you would follow and who are cured of an ill of which you would be cured. Follow the way by which they began, by acting as if they believe, taking the holy water, having masses said, etc., even this will naturally make you believe and deaden your acuteness. But this is what I am afraid of. And why? What have you to lose? But to show you that this leads you there, it is this which will lessen the passions, which are your stumbling blocks. The end of this discourse. Now what harm will befall you in taking this side? You will be faithful, honest, humble, grateful, generous, a sincere friend, truthful, Certainly you will not have those poisonous pleasures, glory, and luxury, but will you not have others? I will tell you that you will thereby gain in this life, and that at each step you take on this road you will see so great certainty of gain, so much nothingness in what you risk, that you will at last recognize that you have wagered for something certain and infinite, for which you have given nothing. Ah, this discourse transports me, charms me, etc., if this discourse pleases you and seems impressive, know that it is made by a man who has knelt, both before and after it, in prayer to that being, infinite and without parts, before whom he lays all he has, for you also to lay before him all you have, for your own good and for his glory, that so strength may be given to lowliness. 234. If we must not act save on a certainty, we ought not to act on religion for it is not certain. But how many things we do on an uncertainty! Sea voyages, battles! I say, then, we must do nothing at all, for nothing is certain, and that there is more certainty in religion than there is as to whether we may see tomorrow, for it is not certain that we may see tomorrow, and it is certainly possible that we may not see it. We cannot say as much about religion. It is not certain that it is, but who will venture to say that it is certainly possible that it is not? Now, when we work for tomorrow, and so, on an uncertainty, we act reasonably, for we ought to work for an uncertainty according to the doctrine of chance which was demonstrated above. St. Augustine has seen that we work for an uncertainty, on sea, in battle, etc., but he has not seen the doctrine of chance which proves that we should do so. Montaigne has seen that we are shocked at a fool, and that habit is all-powerful, but he has not seen the reason of this effect. All these persons have seen the effects, but they have not seen the causes. They are, in comparison with those who have discovered the causes, as those who have only eyes are, in comparison with those who have intellect. For the effects are perceptible by sense, and the causes are visible only to the intellect. And although these effects are seen by the mind, this mind is, in comparison with the mind which sees the causes, as the bodily senses are in comparison with the intellect. 235. Rem viderunt, causam non viderunt. Footnote. They saw the thing, not the cause. End of footnote.
236. According to the doctrine of chance, you ought to put yourself to the trouble of searching for the truth. For if you die without worshipping the true cause, you are lost. But, say you, if he had wished me to worship him, he would have left me signs of his will. He has done so, but you neglect them. Seek them, therefore, it is well worth it. 237. Chances. We must live differently in the world, according to these different assumptions. 1. That we could always remain in it. 2. That it is certain that we shall not remain here long, and uncertain if we shall remain here one hour. This last assumption is our condition. 238. What do you then promise me, in addition to certain troubles, but ten years of self-love, for ten years is the chance, to try hard to please without success? 239. Objection. Those who hope for salvation are so far happy, but they have as a counterpoise the fear of hell. Reply. Who has most reason to fear hell? He who is in ignorance whether there is a hell, and who is certain of damnation if there is, or he who certainly believes there is a hell, and hopes to be saved if there is. 240. I would soon have renounced pleasure, they say, had I faith. For my part I tell you, you would soon have faith if you renounced pleasure. Now it is for you to begin. If I could, I would give you faith. I cannot do so, nor therefore test the truth of what you say. But you can well renounce pleasure, and test whether what I say is true. 241. Order. I would have far more fear of being mistaken, and of finding that the Christian religion was true, than of not being mistaken in believing it true. End of section 3. Section 4 of Pensée. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin, London, Ontario, Canada. Latin language reading by Lenny, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Pensée by Blaise Pascal. Translated by W. F. Trotter. Section 4 of the means of belief. 242. Preface to the second part. To speak of those who have treated of this matter. I admire the boldness with which these persons undertake to speak of God. In addressing their argument to infidels, their first chapter is to prove divinity from the works of nature. I should not be astonished at their enterprise, if they were addressing their argument to the faithful, for it is certain that those who have the living faith in their heart see at once that all existence is none other than the work of the God whom they adore. But for those in whom this light is extinguished, and in whom we purpose to rekindle it, persons destitute of faith and grace, who, seeking with all their light whatever they see in nature that can bring them to this knowledge, find only obscurity and darkness, to tell them that they have only to look at the smallest things which surround them, and they will see God openly, to give them, as a complete proof of this great and important matter, the course of the moon and planets, and to claim to have concluded the proof with such an argument, is to give them ground for believing that the proofs of our religion are very weak. 
and I see by reason and experience that nothing is more calculated to arouse their contempt. It is not after this manner that Scripture speaks, which has a better knowledge of the things that are of God. It says, on the contrary, that God is a hidden God, and that, since the corruption of nature, he has left men in a darkness from which they can escape only through Jesus Christ, without whom all communion with God is cut off. Footnote. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knoweth the Son, save the Father. Neither doth any know the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. End of footnote. This is what Scripture points out to us when it says in so many places that those who seek God find him. It is not of that light, like the noonday sun, that this is said. We do not say that those who seek the noonday sun or water in the sea shall find them and hence the evidence of God must not be of this nature. So it tells us elsewhere. Footnote, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. End of footnote. 243. It is an astounding fact that no canonical writer has ever made use of nature to prove God. They all strive to make us believe in him. David, Solomon, etc. have never said, There is no void, therefore there is a God. They must have had more knowledge than the most learned people who came after them, and who have all made use of this argument. This is worthy of attention. 244. Why, do you not say yourself that the heavens and birds prove God? No. And does your religion not say so? No, for although it is true in a sense for some souls to whom God gives this light, yet it is false with respect to the majority of men. 245. There are three sources of belief, reason, custom, inspiration. The Christian religion, which alone has reason, does not acknowledge as her true children those who believe without inspiration. It is not that she excludes reason and custom. On the contrary, the mind must be opened to proofs, must be confirmed by custom, and offer itself in humbleness to inspirations, which alone can produce a true and saving effect. Footnote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made void. End of footnote. 246. Order. After the letter that we ought to seek God, to write the letter on removing obstacles, which is the discourse on the machine, on preparing the machine, on seeking by reason. 247. Order. A letter of exhortation to a friend to induce him to seek. And he will reply, But what is the use of seeking? Nothing is seen. Then to reply to him, Do not despair. And he will answer that he would be glad to find some light, but that, according to this very religion, if he believed in it, it will be of no use to him, and that therefore he prefers not to seek. And to answer to that, the machine. 248. A letter which indicates the use of proofs by the machine. 
Faith is different from proof. The one is human, the other is a gift of God. Footnote, Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. End of footnote. It is this faith that God himself puts into the heart, of which the proof is often the instrument. Footnote, Romans chapter 10 verse 17. So belief cometh of hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. End of footnote. But this faith is in the heart, and makes us not say, footnote, I know, end of footnote, but footnote, I believe, end of footnote. 249. It is superstition to put one's hope in formalities, but it is pride to be unwilling to submit to them. 250. The external must be joined to the internal to obtain anything from God. That is to say, we must kneel, pray with the lips, etc., in order that proud man, who would not submit himself to God, may be now subject to the creature. To expect help from these externals is superstition. To refuse them to the internal is pride. 251. Other religions, as the pagan, are more popular, for they consist in externals, but they are not for educated people. A purely intellectual religion would be more suited to the learned, but it would be of no use to the common people. The Christian religion alone is adapted to all, being composed of externals and internals. It raises the common people to the internal, and humbles the proud to the external. It is not perfect without the two, for the people must understand the spirit of the letter, and the learned must submit their spirit to the letter. 252. For we must not misunderstand ourselves. We are as much automatic as intellectual, and hence it comes that the instrument by which conviction is attained is not demonstration alone. How few things are demonstrated! Proofs only convince the mind. Custom is the source of our strongest and most believed proofs. It bends the automaton, which persuades the mind without its thinking about the matter. Who has demonstrated that there will be a tomorrow, and that we shall die? And what is more believed? It is then custom which persuades us of it. It is custom that makes so many men Christians, custom that makes them Turks, heathens, artisans, soldiers, etc., Faith in baptism is more received among Christians than among Turks. Finally, we must have recourse to it when once the mind has seen where the truth is in order to quench our thirst and steep ourselves in that belief which escapes us at every hour, for always to have proofs ready is too much trouble. We must get an easier belief, which is that of custom, which, without violence, without art, without argument, makes us believe things and inclines all our powers to this belief so that our soul falls naturally into it. It is not enough to believe only by force of conviction, when the automaton is inclined to believe the contrary. Both our parts must be made to believe, the mind by reasons which it is sufficient to have seen once in a lifetime, and the automaton by custom, and by not allowing it to incline to the contrary. Footnote. Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness.
End of footnote. The reason acts slowly, with so many examinations, and on so many principles, which must be always present, that at every hour it falls asleep, or wanders, through want of having all its principles present. Feeling does not act thus, it acts in a moment, and is always ready to act. We must then put our faith in feeling, otherwise it will be always vacillating. 253. Two extremes. To exclude reason. To admit reason only. 254. It is not a rare thing to have to reprove the world for too much docility. It is a natural vice like credulity and as pernicious. Superstition. 255. Piety is different from superstition. To carry piety as far as superstition is to destroy it. The heretics reproach us for this superstitious submission. This is to do what they reproach us for. Infidelity, not to believe in the Eucharist, because it is not seen. Superstition, to believe propositions. Faith, etc. 256. I say there are few true Christians, even as regards faith. There are many who believe, but from superstition. There are many who do not believe solely from wickedness. Few are between the two. In this I do not include those who are of truly pious character, nor all those who believe from a feeling in their heart. 257. There are only three kinds of persons. Those who serve God, having found Him. Others who are occupied in seeking Him, having not found Him while the remainder live without seeking him and without having found him. The first are reasonable and happy, the last are foolish and unhappy, those between are unhappy and reasonable. 258. Footnote. Each one makes a god for himself. End of footnote. Disgust. 259. Ordinary people have the power of not thinking of that about which they do not wish to think. Do not meditate on the passages about the Messiah, said the Jew to his son. Thus our people often act. Thus are false religions preserved, and even the true one in regard to many persons. But there are some who have not the power of thus preventing thought, and who think so much the more as they are forbidden. These undo false religions, and even the true one, if they do not find solid arguments. 260. They hide themselves in the press and call numbers to their rescue. Tumult. Authority. So far from making it a rule to believe a thing because you have heard it, you ought to believe nothing without putting yourself into the position as if you had never heard it. It is your own assent to yourself and the constant voice of your own reason and not of others that should make you believe. Belief is so important. A hundred contradictions might be true. If antiquity were the rule of belief, men of ancient time would then be without rule. If general consent, if men had perished? False humility, pride. Lift the curtain. You try in vain. If you must either believe or deny or doubt. Shall we then have no rule? We judge that animals do well what they do. Is there no rule whereby to judge men? To deny, to believe, and to doubt well are to a man 
what the race is to a horse. Punishment of those who sin, error. 261. Those who do not love the truth take as a pretext that it is disputed, and that a multitude deny it. And so their error arises only from this, that they do not love either truth or charity. Thus they are without excuse. 262. Superstition and lust. Scruples, evil desires. Evil fear. Fear, not such as comes from a belief in God, but such as comes from a doubt whether he exists or not. True fear comes from faith. False fear comes from doubt. True fear is joined to hope, because it is born of faith, and because men hope in the God in whom they believe. False fear is joined to despair, because men fear the God in whom they have no belief. The former fear to lose him, the latter fear to find him. 263. A miracle, says one, would strengthen my faith. He says so when he does not see one. Reasons, seen from afar, appear to limit our view, but when they are reached, we begin to see beyond. Nothing stops the nimbleness of our mind. There is no rule, say we, which has not some exceptions, no truth so general which has not some aspect in which it fails. It is sufficient that it be not absolutely universal to give us a pretext for applying the exception to the present subject, and for saying, this is not always true, there are therefore cases where it is not so. It only remains to show that this is one of them, and that is why we are very awkward or unlucky if we do not find one some day. 264. We do not weary of eating and sleeping every day, for hunger and sleepiness recur. Without that we should weary of them. So, without the hunger for spiritual things, we weary of them. Hunger after righteousness, the eighth beatitude. 265. Faith indeed tells what the senses do not tell, but not the contrary of what they see. It is above them, and not contrary to them. 266. How many stars have telescopes revealed to us which did not exist for our philosophers of old. We freely attack Holy Scripture on the great number of stars, saying, There are only 1,028, we know it. There is grass on the earth, we see it. From the moon we could not see it. And on the grass are leaves, and in these leaves are small animals, but after that no more. O oh, presumptuous man! The compounds are composed of elements, and the elements not. O oh, presumptuous man! Here is a fine reflection. We must not say that there is anything which we do not see. We must then talk like others, but not think like them. 267. The last proceeding of reason is to recognize that there is an infinity of things which are beyond it. It is but feeble if it does not see so far as to know this. But if natural things are beyond it, what will be said of supernatural? 268. Submission. We must know where to doubt, where to feel certain, where to submit. He who does not do so understands not the force of reason. There are some who offend against these three rules, either by affirming everything as demonstrative, from want of knowing what demonstration is, or by doubting everything, from want of knowing where to submit, or by submitting in everything, from want of knowing where they must judge. 
269. Submission is the use of reason in which consists true Christianity. 270. Saint Augustine. Reason would never submit if it did not judge that there are some occasions on which it ought to submit. It is then right for it to submit when it judges that it ought to submit. 271. Wisdom sends us to childhood. Footnote. Matthew chapter 18 verse 3. Verily I say unto you, except ye turn and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. End of footnote. 272. There is nothing so conformable to reason as this disavowal of reason. 273. If we submit everything to reason, our religion will have no mysterious and supernatural element. If we offend the principles of reason, our religion will be absurd and ridiculous. 274. All our reasoning reduces itself to yielding to feeling. But fancy is like, though contrary to feeling, so that we cannot distinguish between these contraries. One person says that my feeling is fancy, another that his fancy is feeling. We should have a rule. Reason offers itself, but it is pliable in every sense, and thus there is no rule. 275. Men often take their imagination for their heart, and they believe they are converted as soon as they think of being converted. 276. Monsieur de Rouenet said, Reasons come to me afterwards, but at first a thing pleases or shocks me without my knowing the reason, and yet it shocks me for that reason which I only discover afterwards. But I believe, not that it shocked him for the reasons which were found afterwards, but that these reasons were only found because it shocks him. 277. The heart has its reasons which reason does not know. We feel it in a thousand things. I say that the heart naturally loves the universal being, and also itself naturally, according as it gives itself to them, and it hardens itself against one or the other at its will. You have rejected the one and kept the other. Is it by reason that you love yourself? 278. It is the heart which experiences God and not the reason. This, then, is faith, God felt by the heart, not by the reason. 279. Faith is a gift of God. Do not believe that we said it was a gift of reasoning. Other religions do not say this of their faith. They only gave reasoning in order to arrive at it, and yet it does not bring them to it. 280. The knowledge of God is very far from the love of Him. 281. Heart, Instinct, Principles 282. We know truth, not only by the reason, but also by the heart, and it is in this last way that we know first principles, and reason which has no part in it tries in vain to impugn them. The skeptics, who have only this for their object, labor to no purpose. We know that we do not dream, and however impossible it is for us to prove it by reason, this inability demonstrates only the weakness of our reason, but not, as they affirm, the uncertainty of all our knowledge. For the knowledge of first principles, as space, time, motion, number, is as sure as any of those which we get from reasoning. 
and reason must trust these intuitions of the heart, and must base on them every argument. We have intuitive knowledge of the tridimensional nature of space, and of the infinity of number, and reason then shows that there are two square numbers, one of which is double of the other. Principles are intuited, propositions are inferred, all with certainty, though in different ways. And it is as useless and absurd for reason to demand from the heart proofs of her first principles before admitting them, as it would be for the heart to demand from reason an intuition of all demonstrated propositions before accepting them. This inability ought, then, to serve only to humble reason, which would judge all, but not to impugn our certainty, as if only reason were capable of instructing us. Would to God, on the contrary, that we had never need of it, and that we knew everything by instinct and intuition. But nature has refused us this boon. On the contrary, she has given us but very little knowledge of this kind, and all the rest can be acquired only by reasoning. Therefore, those to whom God has imparted religion by intuition are very fortunate, and justly convinced. But to those who do not have it, we can give it only by reasoning, waiting for God to give them spiritual insight, without which faith is only human, and useless for salvation. 283. Order. Against the objection that Scripture has no order. The heart has its own order, the intellect has its own, which is by principle and demonstration. The heart has another. We do not prove that we ought to be loved by enumerating in order the causes of love. That would be ridiculous. Jesus Christ and St. Paul employ the rule of love, not of intellect, for they would warm, not instruct. It is the same with St. Augustine. This order consists chiefly in digressions on each point to indicate the end, and keep it always in sight. 284. Do not wonder to see simple people believe without reasoning. God imparts to them love of him and hatred of self. He inclines their heart to believe. Men will never believe with the saving and real faith unless God inclines their heart, and they will believe as soon as he inclines it. And this is what David knew well when he said, 285. Religion is suited to all kinds of minds. Some pay attention only to its establishment, and this religion is such that its very establishment suffices to prove its truth. Others trace it even to the apostles. The more learned go back to the beginning of the world. The angels see it better still, and from a more distant time. 286. Those who believe without having read the Testaments do so because they have an inward disposition entirely holy, and all that they hear of our religion conforms to it. They feel that a God has made them. They desire only to love God. They desire to hate themselves only. They feel that they have no strength in themselves, that they are incapable of coming to God, and that if God does not come to them, they can have no communion with him. And they hear our religion say that men must love God only, and hate self only, but that all being corrupt and unworthy of God, God made himself man to unite himself to us. No more is required to persuade men who have this disposition in their heart, and who have this knowledge of their duty, and of their inefficiency. 287. Those whom we see to be Christians without the knowledge of the prophecies and evidences nevertheless judge of their religion as well as those who have that knowledge. 
They judge of it by the heart, as others judge of it by the intellect. God himself inclines them to believe, and thus they are most effectively convinced. I confess indeed that one of those Christians who believe without proofs will not perhaps be capable of convincing an infidel who will say the same of himself. But those who know the proofs of religion will prove without difficulty that such a believer is truly inspired by God, though he cannot prove it himself. For God, having said in his prophecies, which are undoubtedly prophecies, that in the reign of Jesus Christ he would spread his spirit abroad among nations, and that the youths and maidens and children of the church would prophesy, it is certain that the Spirit of God is in these, and not in the others. 288. Instead of complaining that God has hidden himself, you will give him thanks for having revealed so much of himself, and you will also give him thanks for not having revealed himself to haughty sages, unworthy to know so holy as God. Two kinds of persons know him, those who have a humble heart and who love lowliness, whatever kind of intellect they may have, high or low, and those who have sufficient understanding to see the truth, whatever opposition they may have to it. 289. Proof. 1. The Christian religion, by its establishment, having established itself so strongly, so gently, whilst so contrary to nature. 2. The sanctity, the dignity, and the humility of a Christian soul. 3. The miracles of Holy Scripture. 4. Jesus Christ in particular. 5. The Apostles in particular. 6. Moses and the Prophets in particular. 7. The Jewish people. 8. The prophecies. 9. Perpetuity. No religion has perpetuity. 10. The doctrine which gives a reason for everything. 11. The sanctity of this law. 12. By the course of the world. Surely, after considering what is life and what is religion, we should not refuse to obey the inclination to follow it, if it comes into our heart, and it is certain that there is no ground for laughing at those who follow it. 290. Proofs of Religion Morality, Doctrine, Miracles, Prophecies, Types End of Section 4《ポンセイ》Section 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin, London, Ontario, Canada. Latin language reading by Lenny, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil.《ポンセイ》by Blaise Pascal. Translated by W. F. Trotter. Section 5 Justice and the reason of effects. 291. In the letter On Injustice can come the ridiculousness of the law that the elder gets all. My friend, you were born on this side of the mountain. It is therefore just that your elder brother gets everything. Why do you kill me? 292. He lives on the other side of the water. 293. Why do you kill me? What, do you not live on the other side of the water? If you lived on this side, my friend, I should be an assassin, and it would be unjust to slay you in this manner. 
but since you live on the other side, I am a hero, and it is just. 294. On what shall man found the order of the world which he would govern? Shall it be on the caprice of each individual? What confusion? Shall it be on justice? Man is ignorant of it. Certainly, had he known it, he would not have established this maxim, the most general of all that obtain among men, that each should follow the customs of his own country. The glory of true equity would have brought all nations under subjection, and legislators would not have taken as their model the fancies and caprice of Persians and Germans instead of this unchanging justice. We should have seen it set up in all the states on earth and in all times, whereas we see neither justice nor injustice, which does not change its nature with change in climate. Three degrees of latitude reverse all jurisprudence. A meridian decides the truth. Fundamental laws change after a few years of possession. Right has its epochs. The entry of Saturn into the lion marks to us the origin of such and such a crime. A strange justice that is bounded by a river. Truth on this side of the Pyrenees, error on the other side. Men admit that justice does not consist in these customs, but that it resides in natural laws common to every country. They would certainly maintain it obstinately if reckless chance which has distributed human laws had encountered even one which was universal. But the farce is that the caprice of men has so many vagaries that there is no such law. Theft, incest, infanticide, patricide have all had a place among virtuous actions. Can anything be more ridiculous than that a man should have the right to kill me because he lives on the other side of the water and because his ruler has a quarrel with mine, though I have none with him? Doubtless there are natural laws, but good reason once corrupted has corrupted all. Nihil amplius nostrum est, quod nostrum dicimus artis est. Footnote. We can claim nothing more. What we call ours is arts. End of footnote. Ex senatus consultis et plebiscitis crimina exercentur. Footnote. Decrees of the senate and of the people are responsible for crimes. End of footnote. Ut olim vitiis, sic nunc legibus laboramus. Footnote. As once we suffered from vices, so now from laws. End of footnote. The result of this confusion is that one affirms the essence of justice to be the authority of the legislator, another the interest of the sovereign, another present custom, and this is the most sure. Nothing, according to reason alone, is just in itself. All changes with time. Custom creates the whole of equity for the simple reason that it is accepted. It is the mystical foundation of its authority. Whoever carries it back to first principles destroys it. Nothing is so faulty as those laws which correct faults. He who obeys them because they are just obeys a justice which is imaginary, and not the essence of law. It is quite self-contained. It is law and nothing more. He who will examine its motive will find it so feeble and so trifling that if he be not accustomed to contemplate the wonders of human imagination, he will marvel that one century has gained for it so much pomp and reverence. The art of opposition and of revolution is to unsettle established customs, sounding them even to their source, to point out their want of authority and justice. 
we must, it is said, get back to the natural and fundamental laws of the state, which an unjust custom has abolished. It is a game certain to result in the loss of all. Nothing will be just on the balance. Yet people readily lend their ear to such arguments. They shake off the yoke as soon as they recognize it, and the great profit by their ruin, and by that of these curious investigators of accepted customs. But from a contrary mistake, men sometimes think they can justly do everything which is not without an example. That is why the wisest of legislators said that it was often necessary to deceive men for their own good. And another, a good politician, Cum veritatem qua liberetur ignoret, expedit quod falatur. Footnote. When a man does not understand the truth by which he might be freed, it is expedient that he should be deceived. St. Augustine. End of footnote. We must not see the fact of usurpation. Law was once introduced without reason, and has become reasonable. We must make it regarded as authoritative, eternal, and conceal its origin if we do not wish that it should soon come to an end. 295. Mine, thine. This dog is mine, said those poor children. That is my place in the sun. Here is the beginning and the image of the usurpation of all the earth. 296. When the question for consideration is whether we ought to make war and kill so many men, condemn so many Spaniards to death, only one man is judge, and he is an interested party. There should be a third who is disinterested. 297. Weri Iuris. Footnote of the True Law. End of footnote. We have it no more. If we had it, we should take conformity to the customs of a country as the rule of justice. It is here that, not finding justice, we have found force, etc. 298. Justice, might. It is right that what is just should be obeyed. It is necessary that what is strongest should be obeyed. Justice without might is helpless. Might without justice is tyrannical. Justice without might is gainsaid, because there are always offenders. Might without justice is condemned. We must then combine justice and might, and for this end make what is just strong, or what is strong just. Justice is subject to dispute. Might is easily recognized and is not disputed. So we cannot give might to justice, because might has gainsaid justice, and has declared that it is she herself who is just. And thus, being unable to make what is just strong, we have made what is strong just. 299. The only universal rules are the laws of the country in ordinary affairs, and of the majority in others. Whence comes this? From the might which is in them. Hence it comes that kings, who have power of a different kind, do not follow the majority of their ministers. No doubt equality of goods is just, but, being unable to cause might to obey justice, men have made it just to obey might. Unable to strengthen justice, they have justified might, so that the just and the strong should unite, and there should be peace, which is the sovereign good. 300. When a strong man armed keepeth his goods, his goods are in peace. 
301. Why do we follow the majority? Is it because they have more reason? No, because they have more power. Why do we follow ancient laws and opinions? Is it because they are more sound? No, but because they are unique and remove from us the root of difference. 302. It is the effect of might, not of custom. For those who are capable of originality are few. The greater number will only follow and refuse glory to those inventors who seek it by their inventions. And if these are obstinate in their wish to obtain glory and despise those who do not invent, the latter will call them ridiculous names and would beat them with a stick. Let no one then boast of his subtlety or let him keep his complacency to himself. 303. Might is the sovereign of the world, and not opinion. But opinion makes use of might. It is might that makes opinion. Gentleness is beautiful in our opinion. Why? Because he who will dance on a rope will be alone, and I will gather a stronger mob of people who will say that it is unbecoming. 304. The cords which bind the respect of men to each other are, in general, cords of necessity. For there must be different degrees, all men wishing to rule, and not all being able to do so, but some being able. Let us then imagine we see society in the process of formation. Men will doubtless fight till the stronger party overcomes the weaker, and a dominant party is established. But when this is once determined, the masters, who do not desire the continuation of strife, then decree that the power which is in their hands shall be transmitted as they please. Some place it in election by the people, others in hereditary succession, etc. And this is the point where imagination begins to play its part. Till now power makes fact. Now power is sustained by imagination in a certain party, in France in the nobility, in Switzerland in the burgesses, etc. These cords which bind the respect of men to such and such an individual are therefore the cords of imagination. 305. The Swiss are offended by being called gentlemen, and prove themselves true plebeians in order to be thought worthy of great office. 306. As duchies, kingships, and magistracies are real and necessary, because might rules all, they exist everywhere and always. But since only caprice makes such and such a one a ruler, the principle is not constant, but subject to variation, etc., 307. The Chancellor is grave and clothed with ornaments, for his position is unreal. Not so the King, he has power and has nothing to do with the imagination. Judges, physicians, etc. appeal only to the imagination. 308. The habit of seeing kings accompanied by guards, drums, officers, and all the paraphernalia which mechanically inspire respect and awe makes their countenance, when sometimes seen alone without these accompaniments, impress respect and awe on their subjects, because we cannot separate in thought their persons from the surroundings with which we see them usually joined. And the world, which knows not that this effect is the result of habit, believes that it arises by a natural force. Whence come these words, The character of divinity is stamped on his countenance, etc. 309. Justice. As custom determines what is agreeable, 
so also does it determine justice. 310. King and Tyrant I too will keep my thoughts secret. I will take care on every journey. Greatness of establishment, respect for establishment. The pleasure of the great is the power to make people happy. The property of riches is to be given liberally. The property of each thing must be sought. The property of power is to protect. When force attacks humbug, when a private soldier takes the square cap off a first president and throws it out of the window. 311. The government founded on opinion and imagination reigns for some time, and this government is pleasant and voluntary. That founded on might lasts forever. Thus, opinion is the queen of the world, but might is its tyrant. 312. Justice is what is established, and thus all our established laws will necessarily be regarded as just without examination, since they are established. 313. Sound opinions of the people. Civil wars are the greatest of evils. They are inevitable if we wish to reward desert, for all will say that they are deserving. The evil we have to fear from a fool who succeeds by right of birth is neither so great nor so sure. 314. God has created all for himself. He has bestowed upon himself the power of pain and pleasure. You can apply it to God or to yourself. If to God the gospel is the rule, if to yourself you will take the place of God. As God is surrounded by persons full of charity who ask of him the blessings of charity that are in his power, so recognize then and learn that you are only a king of lust and take the ways of lust. 315. The Reason of Effects It is wonderful that men would not have me honor a man clothed in brocade and followed by seven or eight lackeys. Why? He will have me thrashed if I do not salute him. This custom is a force. It is the same with a horse in fine trappings in comparison with another. Montaigne is a fool not to see what difference there is, to wonder at our finding any, and to ask the reason. Indeed, says he, how comes it, etc. 316. Sound Opinions of the People to be spruce is not altogether foolish, for it proves that a great number of people work for one. It shows by one's hair that one has a valet, a perfumer, etc., by one's band, thread, lace, etc. Now it is not merely superficial, nor merely outward show, to have many arms at command. The more arms one has, the more powerful one is. To be spruce is to show one's power. 317. Deference means, put yourself to inconvenience. This is apparently silly, but is quite right. For it is to say, I would indeed put myself to inconvenience if you required it, since indeed I do so when it is of no service to you. Deference further serves to distinguish the great. Now, if deference was displayed by sitting in an armchair, we should show deference to everybody, and so no distinction would be made. But, being put to inconvenience, we distinguish very well. 318. He has four lackeys. 319. How rightly do we distinguish men by external appearances rather than by internal qualities? 
which of us two shall have precedence? Who will give place to the other? The least clever. But I am as clever as he. We should have to fight over this. He has four lackeys, and I have only one. This can be seen, we have only to count. It falls to me to yield, and I am a fool if I contest the matter. By this means we are at peace, which is the greatest of boons. 320. The most unreasonable things in the world become most reasonable because of the unruliness of men. What is less reasonable than to choose the eldest son of a queen to rule a state? We do not choose as captain of a ship the passenger who is of the best family. This law would be absurd and unjust, but because men are so themselves, and always will be so, it becomes reasonable and just. For whom will men choose as the most virtuous and able? We at once come to blows, as each claims to be the most virtuous and able. Let us then attach this quality to something indisputable. This is the king's eldest son. That is clear, and there is no dispute. Reason can do no better, for civil war is the greatest of evils. 321. Children are astonished to see their comrades respected. 322. To be of noble birth is a great advantage. In eighteen years it places a man within the select circle, known and respected, as another would have merited in fifty years. It is a gain of thirty years without trouble. 323. What is the ego? Suppose a man puts himself at a window to see those who pass by. If I pass by, can I say that he placed himself there to see me? No, for he does not think of me in particular. But does he who loves someone on account of beauty really love that person? No, for the smallpox, which will kill beauty without killing the person, will cause him to love her no more. And if one loves me for my judgment, memory, he does not love me, for I can lose these qualities without losing myself. Where then is this ego, if it be neither in the body nor in the soul? And how love the body or the soul, except for these qualities which do not constitute me, since they are perishable? For it is impossible, and would be unjust, to love the soul of a person in the abstract, and whatever qualities might be therein. We never then love a person, but only qualities. Let us then jeer no more at those who are honored on account of rank and office, for we love a person only on account of borrowed qualities. 324. The people have very sound opinions. For example, 1. In having preferred diversion and hunting to poetry. The half-learned laugh at it, and glory in being above the folly of the world. But the people are right for a reason which these do not fathom. 2. In having distinguished men by external marks, as birth or wealth. The world again exults in showing how unreasonable this is, but it is very reasonable. Savages laugh at an infant king. 3. In being offended at a blow, or in desiring glory so much. But it is very desirable on account of the other essential goods which are joined to it, and a man who has received a blow without resenting it is overwhelmed with taunts and indignities. 4. In working for the uncertain, in sailing on the sea, in walking over a plank. 325. Montaigne is wrong. Custom should be followed only because it is custom, and not because it is reasonable or just. 
but people follow it for this sole reason, that they think it just. Otherwise they would follow it no longer, although it were the custom, for they will only submit to reason or justice. Custom without this would pass for tyranny, but the sovereignty of reason and justice is no more tyrannical than that of desire. They are principles natural to man. It would therefore be right to obey laws and customs because they are laws, but we should know that there is neither truth nor justice to introduce into them, that we know nothing of these, and so must follow what is accepted. By this means we would never depart from them. But the people cannot accept this doctrine, and as they believe that truth can be found, and that it exists in law and custom, they believe them, and take their antiquity as a proof of their truth, and not simply of their authority apart from truth. Thus they obey laws, but they are liable to revolt when these are proved to be valueless, and this can be shown of all, looked at from a certain aspect. 326. Injustice. It is dangerous to tell the people that the laws are unjust, for they obey them only because they think them just. Therefore it is necessary to tell them at the same time that they must obey them because they are laws, just as they must obey superiors, not because they are just, but because they are superiors. In this way all sedition is prevented, if this can be made intelligible, and it be understood what is the proper definition of justice. 327. The world is a good judge of things, for it is in natural ignorance, which is man's true state. The sciences have two extremes which meet. The first is the pure natural ignorance in which all men find themselves at birth. The other extreme is that reached by great intellects, who, having run through all that men can know, find they know nothing, and come back again to that same ignorance from which they set out. But this is a learned ignorance which is conscious of itself. Those between the two, who have departed from natural ignorance and have not been able to reach the other, have some smattering of this vain knowledge and pretend to be wise. These trouble the world and are bad judges of everything. The people and the wise constitute the world. These despise it and are despised. They judge badly of everything, and the world judges rightly of them. 328. The Reason of Effects continual alternation of pro and con. We have then shown that man is foolish by the estimation he makes of things which are not essential, and all these opinions are destroyed. We have next shown that all these opinions are very sound, and that thus, since all these vanities are well founded, the people are not so foolish as is said. And so we have destroyed the opinion which destroyed that of the people. But we must now destroy this last proposition, and show that it remains always true that the people are foolish, though their opinions are sound, because they do not perceive the truth where it is, and, as they place it where it is not, their opinions are always very false and very unsound. 329. The weakness of man is the reason why so many things are considered fine, as to be good at playing the lute. It is only an evil because of our weakness. 330. The power of kings is founded on the reason and on the folly of the people, and specially on their folly. The greatest and most important thing in the world has weakness for its foundation, and this foundation is wonderfully sure, for there is nothing more sure than this, that the people will be weak. What is based on sound reason is very ill-founded, as the estimate of wisdom. 
331. We can only think of Plato and Aristotle in grand academic robes. They were honest men, like others, laughing with their friends, and when they diverted themselves with writing the laws and the politics, they did it as an amusement. That part of their life was the least philosophic and the least serious. The most philosophic was to live simply and quietly. If they wrote on politics, it was as if laying down rules for a lunatic asylum. And if they presented the appearance of speaking of a great matter, it was because they knew that the madmen, to whom they spoke, thought they were kings and emperors. They entered into their principles in order to make their madness as little harmful as possible. 332. Tyranny consists in the desire of universal power beyond its scope. There are different assemblies of the strong, the fair, the sensible, the pious, in which each man rules at home, not elsewhere. And sometimes they meet, and the strong and the fair foolishly fight as to who shall be master, for their mastery is of different kinds. They do not understand one another, and their fault is the desire to rule everywhere. Nothing can effect this, not even might, which is of no use in the kingdom of the wise, and is only mistress of external actions. Tyranny. So these expressions are false and tyrannical. I am fair, therefore I must be feared. I am strong, therefore I must be loved. I am, etc. Tyranny is the wish to have in one way what can only be had in another. We render different duties to different merits, the duty of love to the pleasant, the duty of fear to the strong, the duty of belief to the learned. We must render these duties, it is unjust to refuse them, and unjust to ask others. And so it is false and tyrannical to say, He is not strong, therefore I will not esteem him. He is not able, therefore I will not fear him. 333. Have you never seen people who, in order to complain of the little fuss you make about them, parade before you the example of great men who esteem them? In answer I reply to them, Show me the merit whereby you have charmed these persons, and I also will esteem you. 334. The Reason of Effects Lust and force are the source of all our actions. Lust causes voluntary actions, force involuntary ones. 335. The Reason of Effects It is then true to say that all the world is under a delusion. For, although the opinions of the people are sound, they are not so as conceived by them, since they think the truth to be where it is not. Truth is indeed in their opinions, but not at the point where they imagine it. Thus it is true that we must honor noblemen, but not because noble birth is real superiority, etc. 336. The Reason of Effects We must keep our thoughts secret, and judge everything by it, while talking like the people. 337. The Reason of Effects Degrees. The people honor persons of high birth. The semi-learned despise them, saying that birth is not a personal but a chance superiority. The learned honor them, not for popular reasons but for secret reasons. Devout persons who have more zeal than knowledge despise them, in spite of that consideration which makes them honored by the learned, because they judge them by a new light which piety gives them. But perfect Christians honor them by another and higher light. So arise a succession of opinions for and against, 
according to the light one has. 338. True Christians nevertheless comply with folly, not because they respect folly, but the command of God, who for the punishment of men has made them subject to these follies. Omnis creatura subiecta est vanitati. Liberabitur. Footnote. Romans chapter 8 verses 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. End of footnote. Thus St. Thomas explains the passage in St. James on giving place to the rich, that if they do it not in the sight of God, they depart from the command of religion. End of section 5. Section 6 of Pensée. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin, London, Ontario, Canada. Latin language reading by Lenny, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Pensée by Blaise Pascal. Translated by W. F. Trotter. Section 6. The Philosophers. 339. I can well conceive a man without hands, feet, head, for it is only experience which teaches us that the head is more necessary than feet. But I cannot conceive man without thought. He would be a stone or a brute. 340. The arithmetical machine produces effects which approach nearer to thought than all the actions of animals. But it does nothing which would enable us to attribute will to it, as to the animals. 341. The account of the pike and frog of Liancourt. They do it always, and never otherwise, nor any other thing showing mind. 342. If an animal did by mind what it does by instinct, and if it spoke by mind what it speaks by instinct, in hunting, and in warning its mates that the prey is found or lost, it would indeed also speak in regard to those things which affect it closer. As example, gnaw me this cord which is wounding me, and which I cannot reach. 343. The beak of the parrot, which it wipes, although it is clean. 344. Instinct and reason, marks of two natures. 345. Reason commands us far more imperiously than a master, for in disobeying the one we are unfortunate, and in disobeying the other we are fools. 346. Thought constitutes the greatness of man. 347. Man is but a reed, the most feeble thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water, suffices to kill him. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be more noble than that which killed him, because he knows that he dies and the advantage which the universe has over him. The universe knows nothing of this. 
All our dignity consists then in thought. By it we must elevate ourselves, and not by space and time which we cannot fill. Let us endeavor then to think well. This is the principle of morality. 348. A thinking reed. It is not from space that I must seek my dignity, but from the government of my thought. I shall have no more if I possess worlds. By space the universe encompasses and swallows me up like an atom. By thought I comprehend the world. 349. Immateriality of the Soul Philosophers who have mastered their passions. What matter could do that? 350. The Stoics. They conclude that what has been done once can be done always, and that since the desire of glory imparts some power to those whom it possesses, others can well do likewise. There are feverish movements which health cannot imitate. Epictetus concludes that since there are consistent Christians, every man can easily be so. 351. Those great spiritual efforts which the soul sometimes essays are things on which it does not lay hold. It only leaps to them, not as upon a throne, forever, but merely for an instant. 352. The strength of a man's virtue must not be measured by his efforts, but by his ordinary life. 353. I do not admire the excess of a virtue as of valor, except I see at the same time the excess of the opposite virtue, as in Epaminondas, who had the greatest valor and the greatest kindness. For otherwise it is not to rise, it is to fall. We do not display greatness by going to one other extreme, but in touching both at once, and filling all the intervening space. But perhaps this is only a sudden movement of the soul, from one to the extreme, and in fact it is ever at one point only, as in the case of a firebrand. Be it so, but at least this indicates agility, if not expanse of soul. 354. Man's nature is not always to advance. It has its advances and retreats. Fever has its cold and hot fits, and the cold proves as well as the hot the greatness of the fire of fever. The discoveries of men from age to age turn out the same. The kindness and the malice of the world in general are the same. Footnote. Changes are usually pleasing to princes. Horace. End of footnote. 355. Continuous eloquence wearies. Princes and kings sometimes play. They are not always on their thrones. They weary there. Grandeur must be abandoned to be appreciated. Continuity in everything is unpleasant. Cold is agreeable that we may get warm. Nature acts by progress. Itus et reditus. It goes and returns, then advances further, then twice as much backwards, then more forward than ever, etc. The tide of the sea behaves in the same manner, and so, apparently, does the sun in its course. 356. The nourishment of the body is little by little, fullness of nourishment and smallness of substance. 357. 
when we would pursue virtues to their extremes on either side, vices present themselves, which insinuate themselves insensibly there, in their insensible journey towards the infinitely little, and vices present themselves in a crowd towards the infinitely great, so that we lose ourselves in them, and no longer see virtues. We find fault with perfection itself. 358. Man is neither angel nor brute, and the unfortunate thing is that he who would act the angel acts the brute. 359. We do not sustain ourselves in virtue by our own strength, but by the balancing of two opposed vices, just as we remain upright amidst two contrary gales. Remove one of the vices, and we fall into the other. 360. What the Stoics propose is so difficult and foolish. The Stoics lay down that all those who are not at their high degree of wisdom are equally foolish and vicious as those who are two inches under water. 361. The Sovereign Good. Dispute about the Sovereign Good. Ut sis contentus temet ipso et exte nascentibus bonis. Footnote. That you may be contented with yourself and the good things that spring from you. Seneca. End of footnote. There is a contradiction, for in the end they advise suicide. Oh, what a happy life from which we are to free ourselves as from the plague. 362. Exenatus consultis et previscitis. To ask like passages. 363. Exenatus consultis et plebiscitis celera exercentur. Footnote. Decrees of the Senate and of the people are responsible for crimes. Seneca. End of footnote. Nihil tam absurde dici potest, quod non dicatur ab aliquo philosophorum. Footnote. Nothing can be said so absurd that it may not be said by some philosopher. Cicero. Divinatione. End of footnote. Quibusdam destinati sententiis consecrati, quae non proban coguntur defendere. Footnote. Those who are given over to certain preconceived ideas are forced to defend what they cannot prove. Cicero. End of footnote. Ut omnium rerum sic literarum quoque intemperanti elaboramus. Footnote. In literature, as in all things, we labor in excess. Seneca. End of footnote. Id maxime quemque decid, quod esquiusque sum maxime. Footnote. That becomes any one best, which is most his own. Cicero. End of footnote. Hos natura modus primum dedit. Footnote. Nature first gave those customs. Virgil. End of footnote. Paucis opus est literis ad bonam mentem. Footnote. For the good mind, few books are necessary. End of footnote. Si quando turpe non sit, tamen non est non turpe cum id ab multitudine laudetur. Footnote. If perchance a thing is not base, it does not escape baseness by being praised by the crowd. End of footnote. Mihi sic usus est, tibi ut opus est facto, fac. Footnote. That is my custom. You must do as necessity bids. Terence. End of footnote.
364. Footnote. It is a rare thing for anyone to fear himself enough. End of footnote. Tot circa unum caput tumultuantes deos. Footnote. So many gods brawling around one poor man. End of footnote. Nihil turpius quam cognitioni assertionem praecurere. Footnote. There is nothing more unseemly than to understand before the thing has been stated. Cicero. End of footnote. Nec me pudet ut istus fateri nescire quid nesciam. Footnote. I am not ashamed, as your friends are, to confess that I do not know what I do not know. End of footnote. Melius non incipiet. Footnote. He will not begin better than he can finish. Seneca. End of footnote. 365. Thought. All the dignity of man consists in thought. Thought is therefore by its nature a wonderful and incomparable thing. It must have strange defects to be contemptible. But it has such, so that nothing is more ridiculous. How great it is in its nature! How vile it is in its defects! But what is this thought? How foolish it is! 366. The mind of this sovereign judge of the world is not so independent that it is not liable to be disturbed by the first din about it. The noise of a cannon is not necessary to hinder its thoughts. It needs only the creaking of a weathercock or a pulley. Do not wonder if at present it does not reason well. A fly is buzzing in its ears. That is enough to render it incapable of good judgment. If you wish it to be able to reach the truth, Chase away that animal which holds its reason in check and disturbs that powerful intellect which rules towns and kingdoms. Here is a comical god. Oh, ridiculousissimo eroe. Footnote. Oh, most ridiculous hero. End of footnote. 367. The power of flies. They win battles, hinder our soul from acting, eat our body. 368. When it is said that heat is only the motion of certain molecules, and light the conatus recedendi, which we feel, it astonishes us. What? Is pleasure only the ballet of our spirits? We have conceived so different an idea of it, and these sensations seem so removed from those others which we say are the same as those with which we compare them. The sensation from the fire, that warmth which affects us in a manner wholly different from touch, the reception of sound and light, all this appears to us mysterious, and yet it is material like the blow of a stone. It is true that the smallness of the spirits which enter into the pores touches other nerves, but there are always some nerves touched. 369. Memory is necessary for all the operations of reason. 370. Chance gives rise to thoughts, and chance removes them. No art can keep or acquire them. A thought has escaped me. I wanted to write it down. I write instead that it has escaped me. 371. When I was small, I hugged my book, and because it sometimes happened to me to... Note, in the text, the thought is incomplete. End of note. 
In believing I hugged it, I doubted. 372. In writing down my thought, it sometimes escapes me, but this makes me remember my weakness, that I constantly forget. This is as instructive to me as my forgotten thought, for I strive only to know my nothingness. 373. Skepticism. I shall here write my thoughts without order, and not perhaps in unintentional confusion. That is true order, which will always indicate my object by its very disorder. I should do too much honor to my subject if I treated it with order, since I want to show that it is incapable of it. 374. What astonishes me most is to see that all the world is not astonished at its own weakness. Men act seriously, and each follows his own mode of life, not because it is in fact good to follow, since it is the custom, but as if each man knew certainly where reason and justice are. They find themselves continually deceived, and by a comical humility think it is their own fault, and not that of the art which they claim always to possess. But it is well there are so many such people in the world who are not skeptics for the glory of skepticism, in order to show that man is quite capable of the most extravagant opinions, since he is capable of believing that he is not in a state of natural and inevitable weakness, but, on the contrary, of natural wisdom. Nothing fortifies skepticism more than that there are some who are not skeptics. If all were so, they would be wrong. 375. I have passed a great part of my life believing that there was justice, and in this I was not mistaken, for there is justice according as God has willed to reveal it to us. But I did not take it so, and this is where I made a mistake, for I believe that our justice was essentially just, and that I had that whereby to know and judge of it. But I have so often found my right judgment at fault, that at last I have come to distrust myself, and then others. I have seen changes in all nations and men, and thus after many changes of judgment regarding true justice, I have recognized that our nature was but in continual change, and I have not changed since, and if I changed, I would confirm my opinion. The skeptic Arcesilaus, who became a dogmatist. 376. This sect derives more strength from its enemies than from its friends, for the weakness of man is far more evident in those who know it not than in those who know it. 377. Discourses on humility are a source of pride in the vain, and of humility in the humble. So those on skepticism cause believers to affirm. Few men speak humbly of humility, chastely of chastity, few doubtingly of skepticism. We are only falsehood, duplicity, contradiction. We both conceal and disguise ourselves from ourselves. 378. Skepticism. Excess, like defect of intellect, is accused of madness. Nothing is good but mediocrity. The majority has settled that, and finds fault with him who escapes it at whichever end. I will not oppose it. I quite consent to put myself there and refuse to be at the lower end, not because it is low, but because it is an end, for I would likewise refuse to be placed at the top. To leave the mean is to abandon humanity. The greatness of the human soul consists in knowing how to preserve the mean. 
So far from greatness consisting in leaving it, it consists in not leaving it. 379. It is not good to have too much liberty. It is not good to have all one wants. 380. All good maxims are in the world. We only need to apply them. For instance, we do not doubt that we ought to risk our lives in defense of the public good. But for religion, no. It is true there must be inequality among men, but if this be conceded, the door is opened not only to the highest power, but to the highest tyranny. We must relax our minds a little, but this opens the door to the greatest debauchery. Let us mark the limits. There are no limits in things. Laws would put them there, and the mind cannot suffer it. 381. When we are too young, we do not judge well, so also when we are too old. If we do not think enough, or if we think too much on any matter, we get obstinate and infatuated about it. If one considers one's work immediately after having done it, one is entirely prepossessed in its favor. By delaying too long, one can no longer enter into the spirit of it. So, with pictures seen from too far or too near, there is but one exact point which is the true place wherefrom to look at them. The rest are too near, too far, too high, or too low. Perspective determines that point in the art of painting. But who shall determine it in truth and morality? 382. When all is equally agitated, nothing appears to be agitated, as in a ship. When all tend to debauchery, none appears to do so. He who stops draws attention to the excess of others, like a fixed point. 383. The licentious tell men of orderly lives that they stray from nature's path, while they themselves follow it, as people in a ship think those move who are on the shore. On all sides the language is similar. We must have a fixed point in order to judge. The harbor decides for those who are in a ship, but where shall we find a harbor in morality? 384. Contradiction is a bad sign of truth. Several things which are certain are contradicted. Several things which are false pass without contradiction. Contradiction is not a sign of falsity, nor the want of contradiction a sign of truth. 385. Skepticism. Each thing here is partly true and partly false. Essential truth is not so. It is altogether pure and altogether true. This mixture dishonors and annihilates it. Nothing is purely true, and thus nothing is true, meaning by that pure truth. You will say it is true that homicide is wrong. Yes, for we know well the wrong and the false. But what will you say is good? Chastity? I say no, for the world would come to an end. Marriage? No, continence is better. Not to kill? No, for lawlessness would be horrible, and the wicked would kill all the good. To kill? No, for that destroys nature. We possess truth and goodness only in part, and mingled with falsehood and evil. 386. If we dreamt the same thing every night, it would affect us as much as the objects we see every day. And if an artisan were to dream every night for twelve hours' duration that he was a king, I believe he would be almost as happy as a king who should dream every night for twelve hours on end that he was an artisan. 
If we were to dream every night that we were pursued by enemies and harassed by these painful phantoms, or that we passed every day in different occupations, as in making a voyage, we should suffer almost as much as if it were real, and should fear to sleep, as we fear to wake when we dread, in fact, to enter on such mishaps. And, indeed, it would cause pretty nearly the same discomforts as the reality. But since dreams are all different, and each single one is diversified, what is seen in them affects us much less than what we see when awake, because of its continuity, which is not, however, so continuous and level as not to change too. But it changes less abruptly, except rarely, as when we travel, and then we say, it seems to me I am dreaming. For life is a dream a little less inconstant. 387. It may be that there are true demonstrations, but this is not certain. Thus, this proves nothing else but that it is not certain that all is uncertain, to the glory of skepticism. 388. Good sense. They are compelled to say, you are not acting in good faith, we are not asleep, etc. How I love to see this proud reason humiliated and suppliant. For this is not the language of a man whose right is disputed, and who defends it with the power of armed hands. He is not foolish enough to declare that men are not acting in good faith, but he punishes this bad faith with force. 389. Ecclesiastes shows that man without God is in total ignorance and inevitable misery. For it is wretched to have the wish, but not the power. Now he would be happy and assured of some truth, and yet he can neither know nor desire not to know. He cannot even doubt. 390. My God, how foolish this talk is! Would God have made the world to damn it? Would he ask so much from persons so weak, etc.? Skepticism is the cure for this evil, and will take down this vanity. 391. Conversation. Great words to religion. I deny it. Conversation. Skepticism helps religion. 392. Against Skepticism. It is, then, a strange fact that we cannot define these things without obscuring them, while we speak of them with all assurance. We assume that all conceive of them in the same way, but we assume it quite gratuitously, for we have no proof of it. I see, in truth, that the same words are applied on the same occasions, and that every time two men see a body change its place, they both express their view of this same fact by the same word, both saying that it has moved, and from this conformity of application we derive a strong conviction of a conformity of ideas. But this is not absolutely or finally convincing, though there is enough to support a bet on the affirmative, since we know that we often draw the same conclusions from different premises. This is enough, at least, to obscure the matter, not that it completely extinguishes the natural light which assures us of these things. The academicians would have won, but this dulls it and troubles the dogmatists to the glory of the skeptical crowd, which consists in this doubtful ambiguity and in a certain doubtful dimness, from which our doubts cannot take away all the clearness, nor our own natural light chase away all the darkness. 393. It is a singular thing to consider that there are people in the world who, having renounced all the laws of God and nature, have made laws for themselves which they strictly obey, as, for instance, the soldiers of Mahomet, 
robbers, heretics, etc. It is the same with logicians. It seems that their license must be without any limits or barriers, since they have broken through so many that are so just and sacred. 394. All the principles of skeptics, stoics, atheists, etc. are true, but their conclusions are false, because the opposite principles are also true. 395. Instinct, reason. We have an incapacity of proof, insurmountable by all dogmatism. We have an idea of truth, invincible to all skepticism. 396. Two things instruct man about his whole nature, instinct and experience. 397. The greatness of man is great in that he knows himself to be miserable. A tree does not know itself to be miserable. It is then being miserable to know oneself to be miserable. But it is also being great to know that one is miserable. 398. All these same miseries prove man's greatness. They are the miseries of a great lord, of a deposed king. 399. We are not miserable without feeling it. A ruined house is not miserable. Man only is miserable. Ego vir videns. Footnote. I am the man that hath seen affliction. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 1. End of footnote. 400. The greatness of man. We have so great an idea of the soul of man that we cannot endure being despised, of not being esteemed by any soul, and all the happiness of men consists in this esteem. 401. Glory. The brutes do not admire each other. A horse does not admire his companion. Not that there is no rivalry between them in a race, but that is of no consequence. For, when in the stable, the heaviest and most ill-formed does not give up his oats to another, as men would have others do to them. Their virtue is satisfied with itself. 402. The greatness of man, even in his lust, to have known how to extract from it a wonderful code, and to have drawn from it a picture of benevolence. 403. Greatness. The reasons of effects indicate the greatness of man in having extracted so fair an order from lust. 404. The greatest baseness of man is the pursuit of glory, but it is also the greatest mark of his excellence, for whatever possessions he may have on earth, whatever health and essential comfort, he is not satisfied if he has not the esteem of men. He values human reason so highly that, whatever advantages he may have on earth, he is not content if he is not also ranked highly in the judgment of man. This is the finest position in the world. Nothing can turn him from that desire which is the most indelible quality of man's heart. And those who most despise men and put them on a level with the brutes, yet wish to be admired and believed by men, and contradict themselves by their own feelings. Their nature, which is stronger than all, convincing them of the greatness of man more forcibly than reason convinces them of their baseness. 405. Contradiction. Pride counterbalancing all miseries. Man either hides his miseries, or, if he disclose them, glories in knowing them. 406. 
Pride counterbalances and takes away all miseries. Here is a strange monster, and a very plain aberration. He has fallen from his place and is anxiously seeking it. This is what all men do. Let us see who will have found it. 407. When malice has reason on its side, it becomes proud, and parades reason in all its splendor. When austerity or stern choice has not arrived at the true good, and must needs return to follow nature, it becomes proud by reason of this return. 408. Evil is easy, and has infinite forms. Good is almost unique. But a certain kind of evil is as difficult to find as what we call good, and often on this account such particular evil gets passed off as good. An extraordinary greatness of soul is needed, in order to attain to it as well as to good. 409. The Greatness of Man The greatness of man is so evident that it is even proved by his wretchedness. For what in animals is nature we call in man wretchedness, by which we recognize that, his nature being now like that of animals, he has fallen from a better nature which once was his. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? Was Paulus Aemilius unhappy at being no longer consul? On the contrary, everybody thought him happy in having been consul, because the office could only be held for a time. But men thought Perseus so unhappy in being no longer king, because the condition of kingship implied his being always king, that they thought it strange that he endured life. Who is unhappy at having only one mouth? And who is not unhappy at having only one eye? Probably no man ever ventured to mourn at not having three eyes. But any one is inconsolable at having none. 410. Perseus, king of Macedon. Paulus Emilius reproached Perseus for not killing himself. 411. Notwithstanding the sight of all our miseries which press upon us and take us by the throat, we have an instinct which we cannot repress and which lifts us up. 412. There is internal war in man between reason and the passions. If he had only reason without passions, if he had only passions without reason, but having both, he cannot be without strife, being unable to be at peace with the one without being at war with the other. Thus he is always divided against and opposed to himself. 413. This internal war of reason against the passions has made a division of those who would have peace into two sects. The first would renounce their passions and become gods. The others would renounce reason and become brute beasts. But neither can do so, and reason still remains to condemn the vileness and unjustice of the passions, and to trouble the repose of those who abandon themselves to them, and the passions keep always alive in those who would renounce them. 414. Men are so necessarily mad that not to be mad would amount to another form of madness. 415. The nature of man may be viewed in two ways, the one according to its end, and then he is great and incomparable, the other according to the multitude, just as we judge of the nature of the horse and the dog, popularly, by seeing its fleetness. Et animo marcandi. Footnote, and instinct of guarding. End of footnote.
and then man is abject and vile. These are the two ways which make us judge of him differently, and which occasion such disputes among philosophers. For one denies the assumption of the other. One says he is not born for this end, for all his actions are repugnant to it. The other says he forsakes his end when he does these base actions. 416. For Port Royal, Greatness and Wretchedness. Wretchedness being deduced from greatness, and greatness from wretchedness, some have inferred man's wretchedness all the more because they have taken his greatness as a proof of it, and others have inferred his greatness with all the more force because they have inferred it from his very wretchedness. All that the one party has been able to say in proof of his greatness has only served as an argument of his wretchedness to the others, because the greater our fall, the more wretched we are, and vice versa. The one party is brought back to the other in an endless circle, it being certain that in proportion as men possess light they discover both the greatness and the wretchedness of man. In a word, man knows that he is wretched. He is therefore wretched because he is so, but he is really great because he knows it. 417. This twofold nature of man is so evident that some have thought that we had two souls. A single subject seemed to them incapable of such sudden variations from unmeasured presumption to a dreadful dejection of heart. 418. It is dangerous to make man see too clearly his equality with the brutes without showing him his greatness. It is also dangerous to make him see his greatness too clearly apart from his vileness. It is still more dangerous to leave him in ignorance of both, but it is very advantageous to show him both. Man must not think that he is on a level either with the brutes or with the angels, nor must he be ignorant of both sides of his nature, but he must know both. 419. I will not allow man to depend upon himself or upon another to the end that being without a resting place and without repose. Note, the thought is incomplete. End of note. 420. If he exalt himself, I humble him. If he humbles himself, I exalt him. And I always contradict him till he understands that he is an incomprehensible monster. 421. I blame equally those who choose to praise man, those who choose to blame him, and those who choose to amuse themselves, and I can only approve of those who seek with lamentation. 422. It is good to be tired and wearied by the vain search after the true good, that we may stretch out our arms to the Redeemer. 423. Contraries after having shown the vileness and the greatness of man. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. 
new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Let man now know his value. Let him love himself, for there is in him a nature capable of good. But let him not for this reason love the vileness which is in him. Let him despise himself, for this capacity is barren. But let him not therefore despise this natural capacity. Let him hate himself. Let him love himself. He has within him the capacity of knowing the truth and of being happy. But he possesses no truth, either constant or satisfactory. I would then lead man to the desire of finding truth, to be free from passions and ready to follow it where he may find it, knowing how much his knowledge is obscured by the passions. I would indeed that he should hate in himself the lust which determines his will by itself, so that it may not blind him in making his choice, and may not hinder him when he has chosen. 424. All these contradictions, which seem most to keep me from the knowledge of religion, have led me most quickly to the true one. End of section 6